Hi, Don the Stat listeners. Ian here with another episode. My podcast partner, Jonathan's overseas at the moment for work, but we wanted to make sure that we cover the appointment that Brad Scott is a new Essendon coach. So with that in mind, I approached someone I thought could give us a different insight into Scott as coach. He's someone who's worked at North Melbourne for many years through the Brad Scott years and has developed into one of the most insightful game analysts online. Ricky Mangitis, welcome to Don the Stat. Thanks, thanks for having me. I think it's my, be my last uh Last appearance as part of the North Melbourne community. They will disown me once they've found out I'm on an Eston podcast. But um, un- until then, I'm going to enjoy our chat. Well, that's all right. Well, you know, you can, you can get. I'll give you the opportunity to get stuck into us, and that might give you some cred because <laughs> um, you you have the honour of being the first non-Eston supporter um, who's joined Don the Stat. Um, so you're that's someone who. Yeah. At least, yeah. So on in terms of like your online presence, um, you're someone I've been. You know, you, you pop up in the feed every now and then. But I think it was your analysis of the last play of the Eston Collingwood after the siren result that really made me sit up and take notice and, and take a closer look at your work, um, which is, which is top notch. You know, there's, there's a, there's a real gap in, in an analysis, you know, when you, we look at some of the, the stuff that's happening in the media. So having someone of, of your quality doing the work you're doing is excellent for, for fans. So um, for those who aren't familiar with you, can you give a bit of a background on who you are, what your connection to North is and what was your role at the club when you worked there? Yeah, sure. So I guess the main reason I'm on here is because I used to work at North as part of the media crew for six years between 2012 and, and 2017, which was the uh, the relative glory years under Brad Scott, um, basically running the socials. Um, and, and then a lot of writing for the website as well. Um, so I probably should be open off the top and say that I'm always going to have a bias, a bit of a bias towards Brad because without him and, and most of the coaches that were in North while I was there, I wouldn't know, geez, I don't know, 80, 90% what I know now about football because I when you're in that job and you're out on the track, you know, taking photos of training or doing interviews or just observing, like if you want to, you're you're also learning at the same time about game styles and how coaches operate, what it takes, and and the basically you have free access to them and if they're willing, which Brad and Co were, they were yeah you know, more than willing to teach me about about all these things that I've um, then taken forward. And then after I left North, I had all this knowledge and I was like, geez, want to want to put it to want to put it to good use some, somewhere. I feel like I've been in a privileged position and got access to things that um, that not many people do. So fired up a blog at, at theshinboner.com and started it as North stuff and then got the itch to to sort of branch out to league-wide league, league wide stuff as well. I guess the, the name, The Shinboner, probably doesn't help me there, does it? But um, I like to I like to think there's some kind of brand recognition that I don't necessarily want to get rid of. So I kept the name and doing North stuff and and uh, league-wide stuff and and here we are. Yeah, and I mean, you're doing some really good work with the all the trade the trade, um, the trade feedback, and and you know what what it means to the clubs. You know, I've read your aim, Carl Amon piece this uh, just before, and yeah, just like the, the depth of analysis there, and, and what he brings to that club. You know, I think we both probably hate Hawthorne, so at least that's some common ground there. Um, but the fact that you could look at that dispassionately and you know really dig down into why they would want him. Hopefully, when Essendon gets someone in, you know. If, Anyone wants to come to the club in a club in disarray, you know, hopefully we get the same depth of analysis there. But I guess, you know, just going into the sort of the North Essendon relationship, um, I think when we, we played the North game uh, earlier in the season, uh, we, we asked the question, is, is the Essendon North uh, rivalry a real one? Because I think that's a particularly with Essendon supporters, it's a bit of a bit of a, a, a strong opinion that it's for a lot of them that it's not. Um What's your what's your take on Essendon and North as as rivals, and what's the what are the things that stand out to you in in that rivalry? I mean, I think I, I mean maybe I'm maybe I'm out of touch. But I feel like from the Essendon point of view, North they probably look at North as that annoying little brother that won't shut up <laughs> to an extent. Um, I know from from the North point of view, um, 
though Essendon is the main rivalry. Um, I mean, it's, it's, to be as blunt as that, I mean, it goes back, you know, decades, generations. I mean, literally a hundred years ago, dating back to when, to when North um, initially wanted to enter the AFL, BFL, as it was then. So, yeah, from a North point of view, that Essendon rivalry is number one, um, which is why you still see everyone online go on and on about the elimination final in 2014. Even though I think North only beat Essendon once since then, maybe twice. Yeah. I think, I think the last, the last one was in 2016 with the um, the top-ups. That's right, yeah. And then even that was only 10 points or whatever because all the top-ups, they went kick the last few goals, didn't they? Remember, yeah. that was the game that um, I think Essendon we, we, fans Essendon didn't get half-time or something like that. And then, you know, I think North stopped and then, you know, Essendon got close and, and everyone was really happy with, with the effort because of the yeah. way that year, that year played out. But, yeah, I think that's the yeah, last I- time. And then, obviously, for, I mean, recent results for us, I think the, the tipper game uh, stands out. Um, I just remember. I remember sitting behind. I was pretty much in line with that goal, and you're just oh, just no. going nuts, and then rushing to the AFL app to check how long was left to see if, it was, if there was enough time. Um, I think we'll talk. We'll probably bring up the 2014 uh, elimination final a bit later because we'll talk about um, Brad Scott and finals. But I guess just in terms of uh, origins and, and your understanding of Essendon North, what are the what are the matches that stand out for you uh, going back prior to your time with North Melbourne? I mean, for me, I was in sort of primary school, late nineties, um, early two thousands, and we, when North and Essendon were were the two best teams um, for that period. You know, it was yeah, you can make the case that sort of um, ninety nine should have been Essendon's premiership, and then, but you know, obviously not to rub salt in the wound, that didn't happen. And then, obviously, there was two thousand, and, and some of those games I just remember as a eight, nine, ten, eleven year old heading to two thousand and one, um, and that famous comeback game. But um, that was kind of. That was kind of the sort of the, the top layer and, and the pinnacle of of what you wanted to watch um, growing up. I remember, you know, in the, in the schoolyard, everyone's like, "Oh, near North Essendon this week, it's going to be awesome," and, um, and that was that was huge. I mean, here's something I don't think I've told many people: um, that comeback game on 2001. I was, I was 11, and I was, you know, Dad, who's Collingwood supporter, used to drag me along to North games and like, "Hey, I really want to go North Essendon." He's like, "No, no, no," and then eventually managed to persuade him, and it was late, and you know, we got in the car and went to went to the MCG and I literally, we literally sat down as North got, went 11 goals up. So I actually missed all the good stuff. And as soon as we sat down, the comeback started. So I kind of blame myself for that. <laughs> well, my, my story of that is that I, I went to that game. It was, it was only ever the second game I ever went to. The first game I ever went to was actually, if you remember back to that 2000 year for Essendon where they only lost one game, that was the yep. first game I ever, I ever went to as, as a Essendon fan. So good oh, choice wow. by me, but, the second game was that uh, comeback game. And then I, at that point when you're sitting down, I'm begging mum to leave. I'm like, this is the worst <laughs> thing ever. I'm like, the, I'm like the yes and jinx. Um, <laughs> yeah. Luckily she made me stick around and, and, and got to see that. So that's a good thing. Well, I guess, yeah. So let's, let's get into what I brought you in. Obviously the appointment of Brad Scott um, as, as Essendon coach, I think, you know, when Barham, you know, after the sort of the first disastrous interviews, <laughs> and you know the the sacking of Rutten, which I think we can all agree was handled dreadfully, and uh, probably you know reflects a bit of what's happening in the club at the moment. You know, he Brad Scott really sort of lined up with that resume that that Barham outlined at his first uh, press conference, that of an experienced coach. And it did seem like there was a lot of push from uh, people within the media that that Brad Scott was you know if he if he wanted the job. He, he would be the person to get it. I know that at first I was, I was a bit nonplussed and, you know, I, was, I wasn't upset that it was Brad Scott who got the job, but also wasn't super excited. But, you know, when the more I've heard him speak and the more I've heard others speak about him, 
and, you know, even just hearing about his role at the AFL these past three years, you know, I think it, it's actually has started to make me a bit more excited about what he possibly could bring to the club. So I guess someone who's observed him quite closely, what do you think the strengths of Brad Scott as an AFL coach are? I think you mentioned one of them just there. I think uh, judging by the reaction to his introductory presser, he's, a, he's very good, very professional communicator. He leaves no doubt as to what he wants, whether that's for better or worse. Um, like he's always going to, he's always going to defend his players in public. Like every single time. Like we go back to when he was North coach, when he was fined, I was at something thirty thousand or twenty five thousand for it when he accused umpires of judging Lindsay Thomas differently. But like from his point of view, like that's that's what he'll do every single time. So that defending his players in public is, is should in theory foster a, a strong sense of loyalty among the group, which in turn then leads to you know stronger buy in and, and they're more likely to to carry out what Brad what Brad's asking of of the playing group and. I'd say in terms of like an X's and O's point of view, based on his time at North, uh, he's probably an offensive focus coach. It's not not to say he neglects the defensive side of things at all, um, but purely based off his North uh, tenure, I think the best times are off the back of a high-powered offense. Um, and then the intangible strength that we have to wait and see is that he spent three years at the AFL and he's got he's got the IP. Most other coaches, they don't <laughs> probably put their head on the pillow at nine. Geez, so I wish I could get access to what Brad was getting access to every day. Um, with his game analysis and and how he puts that to use is going to be really interesting. And then, and then the second intangible of that is, I mean, I can only imagine what what the AFL politics is like at, at the very top end of the organisation. And he would have had to deal with that day in day out for three years. So, um, you know, from the outside, it looks like Essendon is a political beast as well. Um, and but he's going to come into that well equipped to deal with it because of what he's what he's learned uh, in the upper echelons of the AFL. So, I mean. You, you can combine his communication skills with his status and then oh, I think because of what he's learned in his time off, well, top, I shouldn't say time off, but time at the AFL, you combine that all and I think he's going to come into Essendon a much better coach than he, than he left North Melbourne. Yeah, and is he, is he someone you feel was able to evolve over time? Obviously, you know, I think the fact the fact that you, you suggest he's an offensively-minded coach sort of, you know, lines up with what Essendon, the, the good parts of Essendon have been over the past few years, you know, good, good offensively. Is he, is he the sort of person that is going to be able to, you know, adjust to to what the list needs in order to improve in your mind? Do you think he'll he'll look at that and go, right, you know, this is an offensively tailored list potentially, but we need to address these other issues if we're going to be successful? I think so, yeah, because, I mean, look at – so, I mean, from a North point of view, I kind of look at 2012 to sort of 2016, um, first half of 2016 is, I guess, the, the peak period. And, I mean, and you look at – 2012 as a game start, it was just like full-blown attack all the time. Like, what is defense type of thing? You know, 2013 was kind of the same thing. The team threw a weight to it, which led to all those, you know, close losses. Um, and then the sort of 2014, 2015 was, you yeah, added extra defensive layers. And you could see that evolution mixed with the offense. And then that first half of 2016 was probably the peak. Um, then, then injuries hit and there wasn't the depth behind that best sort of 25 to 26 to continue on, which was probably the first evidence of some drafting failures, which um, we're going to hinder in the next couple of years. And to be honest, that North are only sort of just slowly coming out of now. Um, and then his last year, um, it was an attempt at probably what was on paper was really ambitious attacking philosophy, lots of handball, lots of run, a high skill plan that um, probably a little bit ahead of its time, I think, to be honest. Um, and But the issue was that the list wasn't cut out to execute that. It was a matter of sort of, Square peg, round hole, um, to an extent, and I think that's, I think that's going to be what he learns from 
what he has learned from. Um, and given what he said, his presser and, and, and all the noise about, you know, taking your time, um, I think by the time sort of we get to this stage next year, um, I think that there'll be a really clear, uh, I, guess, I guess, a clear decision of, okay, this is how we want to go. Uh, I feel like 2023 for Brad's probably going to be sort of just assessing things and seeing where they want to go. Yeah, I think that, that that's a fair call. Um, yeah, and I guess, you know, what in terms of working as part of part of a team, how does he go with his assistant coaches? Uh, is he someone who's who likes to delegate and, and leave leave things up to to the assistants, or does he want to be pretty hands on with with all aspects of it? Uh, a bit of both. It changed. Um, cha- it changed a lot. Sort of, um, you know, sometimes you'd see him out there taking everything, and sometimes it'd be the assistants. Um, there probably wasn't a real, you know, this is how it's done. You know, either way, one way or the other. Um, from him, to, to be honest, it was um, it was very much like a situation. Sometimes the assistants take it, sometimes he would. So, um, yeah, I think I think once he, I'm not sure if the he's finalised his coaching group for next year yet, but I think a lot of it will depend on, I guess, the experience he has around him, whether it's you know the same assistants or, or new ones, and and how senior they are. So I think I think the yeah, the quality and the calibre of the assistants will dictate how he starts off with, at least. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, Carousella is still there and is still contracted, uh, at least for next year, as far as I know. And okay. they obviously played in the premiership together. That's right, uh, yeah. Carousella is obviously really highly rated assistant, worked with Brad, um, you know, helped help Brad. With, I'm not sorry, Brad, helped Chris with the 2011 Geelong premiership. Um, so you would hope that they could work they could work together in that. And, yeah, and I guess, you know, he, he hasn't really, it's not, not sort of like, you know what? What was suggested with with Clarkson going into North Melbourne that he was going to bring his whole team in at this stage? You know, I think as you sort of say, he's going to take stock of of what he's got and then maybe make some calls at the end of twenty twenty three, both in terms of playing list and in terms of coaching coaching lists. Yeah, I mean, I think I think so. I mean, I mean, Premiership teammates, right? And I mean, unless you, I mean, maybe half the team couldn't couldn't stand Ackermanus by the end, but they from the outside it looked like they all got on pretty well when they were winning flags. So. Um, yeah, no, I, I think uh, I think it'd be really interesting how he approaches that first year because, um, with all the you know, with what Sheedy said about Heard and, and all the prominent Essendon people in the media, um, yeah, he, he definitely needs time. No, I hope he gets it. I've actually just looked it up. Uh, Brad missed the, the premiership that Carousel played in, so oh, there, there you yeah. go. So I think they're at the, they're at the club at the same time, and I think that's sort of you know, close it's close yeah. close enough. Yeah, I'll edit this out. No, um, <laughs> I guess just sort of moving on. Um, one of the things that. Essendon fans have often had a real frustration with is, you know, the, the recent coaches, so Rutten and Worsold, have really been focused on playing their own way and sort of ignoring the opposition. We did see a little bit of Rutten going with run rev roles in terms of Caldwell. We saw Caldwell uh, go to Neil and be really effective, but, you know, obviously that, that's that's been a really small part of, of how Essendon has tried to play. Is he the sort of, is Brad's got the sort of coach who, uh, really work to adjust what's what his team's going to do. Considering the opponent, is he more focused on let's let's play our way and you know you know win that way? Well, I actually think his best times as a coach at North came when he did adjust. Um, and we look at um, well, actually Ben Jacobs as a tagger actually started initially when he was um, had some time off to recuperate from back surgery, but uh, and then when he came back from that, he sort of tweaked Jacobs' role, and then going heading into the twenty fifteen finals, he sort of. Sam Gibson was kind of that outside winger, but then he gave him more of a defensive role in that final series, shut down uh, Ellis against Richmond and Jetta against Sydney and then played on, I think, off the top of my head, Gaff against West Coast. And that back half of 2015, I think, was actually his best coaching 
period. And that, and that came from the flexibility and, and specific matchups and tweaks and, and how the forwards nece- like worked a little bit as a decoy. And I mean, that 2015 final against Richmond, obviously um, it was Petrie working more as a decoy because they knew Waite had the, the matchup they wanted to exploit, that, that type of thing. So his best times came when he adjusted. There were also times that he was probably a little too slow to adjust. And um, uh, whether, you know, which side of that he takes into Essen, I, I'd like to think that he looks at the best times and goes, okay, I need to, need to adjust. And especially with such a young list that Essen have, I don't think, I think if he came in and said, oh, this is the way we're doing it and put the foot down, Straight away, it's probably unrealistic with the way the list has to just evolve in maturity. Yeah, and, and as as you, as you say, it's it's probably a different demographic list to what he had what he had at North Melbourne, and you would hope that you know three years out of out of coaching and and the perspective he's gained from from viewing all the other programs through his role at the AFL, that he, you know he may have he may really be able to come in with an open mind and and adjust based on what he's got access to. But I guess. The, I think that the general perception of, of North Melbourne at that time is that they overachieved and, and Brad Scott, you know, overachieved with with that list, particularly with the, the 2014 and 2015 prelim finals from the bottom half of the eight. Do you think that's a, that's a fair assessment? And what do you think was the, the key to those those finals runs where, you know, North arguably over, overperformed based on their uh, ladder position from that year? It's funny because I think if you lined up any two random North fans on the street and asked them that question, that one would agree, the other would disagree. You, you could leave them there, come back five hours later, and they'd probably still be <laughs> arguing the point. To be honest, <laughs> to be honest, um, um, it, it's 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 this really interesting one. Um, that those twenty twelve to twenty sixteen years, it was uh, elimination final twenty twelve. Twenty thirteen was probably the best football of the lot, but just I think missed finals and by only losing, I think, two games over 15 points all year. Um, yeah, obviously, the 2014, 2015 was was the key years and then 2016 started so well before it all sort of fell off a cliff. Um, I think in those 2012, 2016 years, with the exception of the second half of 2015, like we talked about just before, there was, there was always a general sense that there was something a little bit missing with the way North set up. I mean, amongst the fans, like the trend of certain losses, it was... Um, Became something of a punchline um, <laughs> with the, the giving up leads, and and amongst the I guess the section of the fans that never really bought into Brad, there was um, they were sort of out for his lack of adaptability. And I mean the I mean the close game record was just like beyond beyond laughable. It was so between 2012 and 2017. I, I did my research, so came prepared with this stat. So games decided by single figures, eight wins, eighteen losses. Oof. And I know that you know all the stats and um, suggest that close games are a coin flip over the long run. But the fact that it was you know you're looking at a six year period, it was eight and eighteen, um, suggests that it went it went past a, a long <laughs> long streak of of luck. So I mean I think in a sense that speaks to coaching a little bit. Um, and then but then like if then if those close losses turn into wins, you probably got a couple more top four finishes and then all of a sudden people are saying, oh, they finished top four twice. And, you know, and then they, sh- they should have made at least one grand final. So it's um, you could, I think you could argue either way for hours and probably not come to a proper conclusion. There'll be a section of North fans that say um, she should have done more, not necessarily in the 2014, 2015, but the other years, either side of that. Um, and then there'll be a section that think, oh, he's definitely overachieved. So, yeah, I, th- I mean... You ask me tomorrow, I'll, I'll probably say he's overachieved. You ask me the day after that, I'll say, oh, 
I wouldn't, I would have preferred a better year in sort of in 2013 and, and finished off better in 2016. So yeah, it's, it's definitely offensive that for me. Yeah. And I guess if, if we drill down into those, those finals then, you know, so obviously first and fans, it's the, the 2014, uh, Elimination final, and you know, Essendon were, were comfortably up at halftime, and, and North North stage a comeback there, and you know that 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 Frank the Frank the Tank Drew Petrie gift is just <laughs> sort of embedded in my mind. It just it fills me with rage seeing it. Um, so you know, if you ever want to if you ever want to roll me up, um, post that. You know, I'll, I'll lose it. Um, I guess maybe maybe firstly, just just that game. Was there any um, any any way in which he specifically? Uh, you know, turn turn the course of that game with with his coaching was it more just the the all the work that had led up to that point allowed the, the North players to be confident that they could come back in that situation. Yeah, I think it was probably the work up to that. I mean, I, I remember. I mean, I'm not 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 uh, spilling any state secrets here, but I remember at halftime looking at the way things were going, and I mean, North was still, still had their fair share of time in the fourth half. They just weren't scoring. They'd always been a, a good scoring team, and you thought, well, they're just going to Move it a touch quicker and get and get some more value for those um, for those entries and and they'll have some luck whether that ends up being a win. And um, one of my great regrets was that I didn't find a way to tweet something like that from North account because I would have been dining out on that to, to this day. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and then the players afterwards in the rooms thought the same as well um, in terms of like a single game perspective. I remember chatting to a few of them and thought you know they were doing a lot of good things. It just wasn't being reflected on on the scoreboard, and that was. I guess a reflection of the way North played in those times. They can give up big runs, but they could also go on big runs as well. Um, but I think that 2015 journey speaks to why I think he'll rather be a, a better coach at Essendon. Um, I think I mentioned before, like in the middle part of the season, he was away for about a month to fix a pretty bad back injury. He was in a lot of pain every day. Um, and then when he came back from that month off, he was really open to tweaks and it was very clear both how he wanted North to play and then how to how he wanted to fix things when things weren't going well, and I think I think we're pretty pretty middling record by the time he came back, and and then went on a winning streak, and um, obviously beat Richmond in the elimination final, comfortably beat Sydney, and was sort of four goals up early in the second against West Coast um, before I sort of before everything sort of stopped. Um, I mean that year, Hawthorne were probably going to destroy whoever they played in the grand final, but um, but yeah, that 2015 thing, I think you'll take a lot out of that, or has taken a lot out of that. Um, and, and he'll be better for it. I mean, that, those last sort of three years he was there, um, general sort of this strategy became really, really muddled and confused. And, um, and, and that's what sort of spoke to that sort of middle treading water period they had. But, um, but yeah, I think the 2015 ones, he'll take a lot out of and he'll, he'll be a better coach for it. Well, it's interesting you, you talk about that list management strategy because one of the first things that he came out and said with Essendon, uh, about their list strategy is, is trying to bring in elite ta- talent. And I guess that was the the problem that the North was having. They weren't be, weren't able to get that elite talent in either through the draft because they weren't finishing, uh, you know, low down the ladder to, to get those draft picks. Um, and they just, you know, they couldn't quite get those, you know, those high profile players across the line. You know, I think Dustin Martin was reasonably close. I don't, I think that was the sort of the talk of the time. That extremely close, yeah. Extremely <laughs> close. Um, you know, I think Jordan Degoe the first time, um, that's probably a bullet dodged. Um, let's, let's be honest. Um, but yeah, I guess, you know, so just moving on from there, what we've, we've talked a lot about what, what his strengths are as a, as a coach. What do you, what do you think the weaknesses of him as, as, as a coach, I guess it's, it's obviously hard to, to say he's, he's bad at this and he's bad at that. 
I guess yeah. what what are the things in the areas that he would be, he would be looking at himself and going, I need to improve on this. I think, funnily enough, because um, he obviously well, he obviously has a lot of similarities to Chris and their personality traits. I think we can take a lot out of how Chris has adapted at Geelong, and obviously he's got a hell of a lot more resources and a lot more inbuilt advantages at Geelong than Brad ever did at North. But I mean, that strong communication can um, can lead to a bit of stubbornness at times, and and that lack of flexibility. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that stubbornness can be a character trait in the Scott family um, for better or for better or worse. Um, Can't imagine so, many people were backing down at Christmas over the last piece of um, last piece of ham or something like that. I don't know what the backyard career games would have been like. I'll tell you that. Lot <laughs> that of, been, lot, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be much pitch in the, in the batsman's half, I imagine. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, and I think, yeah, so that strength can potentially turn into a weakness, which is why I think um, the people he has around him as assistants will be so important and, and like I said, Carousel, I think, will play the key role. You know, I can't imagine he'll go anywhere. Um, to With those those strong voices and, and that sort of inbuilt knowledge of the list already um, that, you know, Brad's not going to come in and, and say, okay, well, you know, clean house. And uh, Whereas when he came to North, he was, what, he was 34 or 33, first-time coach and, and basically sort of running blind a little bit and then, you know, the, the facilities had just been updated as something that was actually AFL standard compared to <laughs> what it was the two, de- two decades before. So um, so for that free strength not to turn into weakness, I think with the communication and potentially the lack of flex- flexibility, he needs those, I think he needs those strong assistant guys at, around him um, and people that he trusts as well, which is obviously the main main thing. So I think those, those appointments in a way are almost going to be um, as important as Brad as head coach. Yeah, we'll, we'll watch that that space. I mean, and, and I guess the other another thing is that you know he he is he is a second time coach. He's he's had a mm-hmm. he's had a go at it uh, before and a fairly decent decent crack at it uh, before this time. And you know the the stats have all come out that you know other than I think what Malthouse at Collingwood in the last uh, twenty years or so that, that that's the only time where a coach has, has come from one club and gone to another and and been successful. I guess is that. Do you th- what do you what do you think about that? Is that something that is just because people haven't up until recently given you know res- coaches who failed a first time a second chance, and, and we're not you know now we've got uh, Ratten at Ratten at St Kilda and, and Voss at, at Carlton. You know we might start to see that trend uh, change, or do you think you know the fr- fresh ideas is a you know is, is more of the way to go. Oh, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think it's very much a case-by-case basis. So, like, you look at someone like Ross Lyon and since he's left Fremantle, he's really sat back in the media and you can tell he's comfortable and he's enjoying what he does there. And he, so he's sort of like clockwork, his name comes up for, for a coaching role. But I think the way he carries himself, he doesn't – I mean, this could end up being egg on my face in a couple of years' time, but the way he carries himself, he doesn't look like someone who'd be able to step in as it stands right now and be a successful coach the second time around. Um, but then, like you said, you look at Voss at Carlton and you know, after Brisbane, he went back to was at Port Adelaide and did his time there. And you can see the difference he made to Carlton this year compared to to how they were last year um, under David T, like night and day. Uh, it, couldn't be, it couldn't be any more of a difference um, if you tried. And I think for me, Scott falls in that Voss category rather than the Lion category. Um, I think, I've mentioned it a few times, but I can only imagine what he would have learned every day at the AFL. I'm kind of jealous of the, <laughs> the stat, stats and the intel that he would have mm-hmm. been uh, that he would have been privy to um, over the last uh, last three years. So I, I think from a purely from a Brad 
yeah, an Essendon point of view, I th- I'm I'm for it. I think it's a I think it's a good appointment. Yeah, as you as you say, I think that that AFL that AFL experience and and the AFL IP that he's got, I don't think any no other coach is going to go into a, a role ever having that sort of you know, exposure to many yeah. as many different programs as he would have been in his role. So, you know, I think it's a, it's really interesting to see how it how it's going to play out there. Moving on to uh, Essendon's list, as, as we sort of said through through the show today, it, it's a really young list. What are the sort of players that you think he's going to be able to get the most out of? Basically, you know, considering the players that he developed in, at North Melbourne, you you talked about Jacobs, um, you know, and and giving him a role that that help make the team successful what sort of you know is there a style of play you think brad scott's going to be really good for or can you even pinpoint specific players you think brad scott's going to be able to, to turn this guy into a into a really good player i think i mean working under the assumption that he'll play you know something similar to what he wanted to play in north and obviously the wild card is what he's learned at the afl i think the key forwards are going to have a great time uh, for a long time he favored sort of three tall forwards with a style based around highlighting them i guess for lack of a better term, it was a, I guess, a traditional forward line. If um, I'm sure there's a better way, to, better way to describe it with um, sort of standard responsibilities and um, sort of Petrie White Brown or Petrie White uh, Petrie uh, Tarrant Hanson early on, and, and that constantly evolved and and figured out the best way to highlight those guys. So I think um, I think someone like Peter Wright is going to have, even if his goal tally is the same next year as it was last year, or even potentially a little less. Um, I think he'll be a much more damaging and threatening player because of the way Brad's like to highlight those key forwards. And I think um, I, was, I think we're going to mention talk about breakout stuff later. But I think someone like Harry Jones, if he stays fit, is going to have a is a strong candidate for a breakout year because you know playing as that as that second tall alongside right and um, whether he wants to play three or three talls and, and who that third tall is, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But um, I think right right and Jones are going to enjoy life under Brad. Yeah, you know, I think when when you started talking about that, it sort of I sort of drew the connection between you know peak peak Ben Brown in when he was playing for North is sort of a similar player to Wright. You know, they're, they're more focused on on leading, um, mm. and obviously both really accurate kicks. So he, I'm, I'm assuming Brad Scott's going to look at him and go, "Well, I can I can use him in in the role I use Ben Brown in." Um, and obviously, you, you know, I think one of the debates at the moment with Essendon is is do they play two rucks? Was that was a Brad Scott a two ruck? Uh, kind of guy, or was he, you know, really relying on Goldstein and, and someone else giving a chop out? No, well, that's 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 actually a part that I'm fascinated to see how what he um, how he approaches because he had the luxury of Goldie being able to play 92 percent game time week after week. Um, he some a couple of weeks where he'd sit there and you have a rest of like three minutes a game, which for a ruck is just just insane. And um, I don't think Draper sort of tends to top out at sort of that seventy five to eighty ish percent game time, which is not something Brad's had to deal with in his time as coach. So, um, yeah, how he does that, whether he goes, you know, Draper and Phillips or Draper and Brian or or wants maybe Wright to be the second ruck, I, I don't know. I'm actually really interested to see how he how he approaches that because that'll be in, something new for him. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure he's got plans, obviously, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a new one for him. Yeah, I, I, I actually quite like Wright as a second ruck. I think one of the things for him is that sometimes, you know, if, if he's not in the game, it's, it's a really good, you know, don't want to sound like Robert Walls, but um, <laughs> <laughs> he was on the selection panel. So maybe he put That's that to Brad Scott. Um, no, but one of the, one of the things is, you know, when you, when you're not getting in the game as a forward, being able to go into the ruck, 
And I think he's actually pretty, he's a pretty effective ruck. I, I was looking at the stats this year for centre-bounce attendances and which which led to a clearance. And, you know, Wright was actually pretty effective in in centre-bounces that, that Essendon won when, when he was in there. Um, and even last last season, his, his most uh, prolific game, the, the seven goals against the Western Bulldogs, he was playing a second ruck. That game is a few examples where he would ruck. Um, ruck the centre bounce and then be able to run down and and get them get the mark and and kick the goal. So I I, I see that as a, as a pretty clear option um, potentially there if he's looking at. And obviously, hopefully Draper, you know, over time you just keep building that tank and be able to, um, you know, he's probably not gonna, never going to get to that Goldstein role because what Goldstein's been doing it for twelve years and he doesn't look like slowing down really, does he? Yeah. Um, he's probably never going to get to that level. But you know, if he can get to 85 percent game time. As a, as a main ruck, then you probably can, you know, have those three tall forwards and, and have Wright as a, as a, as a secondary option or, or someone else there. Well, the interesting thing about that actually is that that might actually lead to more flexibility because, uh, I mean, one of the common complaints amongst North fans at, at times was that because Goldie was such a behemoth in the ruck and, and could do it all himself every week, like he, sometimes you'd have Drew Petrie sort of languishing and he gave his quiet games, but he wouldn't be in the ruck or... You know, might might have been someone like you know, Ben Brown before his knees before his knees became sort of too much of a trouble. Like, yeah, it's like, well, why are they sort of you know languishing down forward and, and sort of you know getting frostbite? Um, but you you couldn't really do it because Goldie was the number one ruck all the time, and he's not the greatest forward of all time. Whereas now with Draper, like you said, sort of cap, you know whatever you can get to, like you have to play a second ruck at some stage, so you're kind of forced into that flexibility, which um yeah I think yeah silver linings. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess on the on the flip side, then so based on the the types of players that, that Scott preferred, is there anyone who's been a regular player for Essendon uh, recently in the last couple of years that you think may struggle for games under uh, under a Scott game style? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think there's the sort of the wider conversation about the midfield mix and and how that and how that is fixed. Um, and and what that entails, whether it's just a simple role change or whether it's a personnel change. But I think in the big picture, I think it's genuinely going to be a clean slate because I'm, I'm pretty convinced he's going to come in with new ideas and a new outlook and, and everyone's going to start from scratch. And I guess that's the thing. It's so, it is such a young list you kind of forced to start from scratch. So I think he's kind of really building from the ground up from a style point of view. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think, one of the things I said mid-year is that Essendon really needs to to stick with something, and and I was even even right at the end with with Rutten, I, I, I thought he should have he should have at least had the first half of next year to to stick it out and see what happened. Obviously, the club went a different way, but we just need to have have a have a focus and allow someone to to see it see it to its fullest. Because if, if you don't, you know, you're just going to keep chopping and changing, and in three years we're going to be in the, in the same boat again. And I guess you know just. As as an outsider, um, you know, look, looking dispassionately, or you know, I guess if you look past your rivalry, um, <laughs> the hatred, um, you know, put, put putting on your analyst hat, um, you know, I've, I've obviously overall for Essendon, it, it was a poor year, um, but also if you look at some of the results, you know, they beat two of, two of the four prelim finalists, and they're in mm-hmm. front of the final siren against the third prelim finalist. So I guess you know, no one's no one's ever going to say that that twenty. 22 was a successful year for Essendon, but what's your assessment of where Essendon is at as a, at a whole, ignoring, ignoring the off-field stuff, because I think yeah. regardless, regardless of how well Scott comes in with his, with good ideas and, and how well he coaches, if the, if they don't sort out the off-field uh, 
you know, they're never going to be successful. So assuming assuming that the off-field gets sorted out, what what's your assessment of where Essendon is at? I mean, I guess the obvious one is how young they are. I was trying to look for some sort of number to sort of reiterate how how young they are, how young the list is. And I settled on at the moment Nick Hines, the sixth oldest player on the list, and he doesn't turn twenty nine until August. So that's I was looking at that. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's it's pretty young. Um, I mean, I think overall there's been a handful of misfires with the list field around the midfield, like I mentioned. Um, but I think from a long term point of view, like there's talent there which needs time. Like you got. Like we've mentioned Jones, we've mentioned Draper, you got Cox, you got Perkins, D'Ambrosio looked good when he came in. I'm a I'm a big rap on on Reed as well. And I thought he took a, a really nice step forward this year. And maybe he's still sort of 18 months away from being a regular best 22. But I, I, I think he's a, a key defender for the next, you know, however many years. And I think that the indiv- there is individual talent there, um, which is why. So it's not necessarily a start from scratch with that, but it is a start from scratch with uh, with the game style. So, I mean, I floated in and out of writing about it during the year, but um, the defense was just a little bit all over the shop. <laughs> um, and the offense changed from from week to week. Like sometimes it was measured, sometimes it was rapid. Uh, there wasn't really a connecting line between what, you know, what forced the slow stuff, what forced the fast stuff. I couldn't really figure out what they were trying to achieve on, on both sides of the ball just because it was – such a change. I mean, you look at, say, compare Essendon to, say, Hawthorne. Um, similar finishing positions in the end. There was what, one or two wins separating them both both or whatever. And But every week you could see exactly what Hawthorne were trying to do under Sam Mitchell, like the way they wanted to move the ball, the way they wanted to defend, what they were working on, um, their priority areas. And, yeah, they only finished with eight wins and copped a couple of big losses, but you could see exactly what they're trying to build towards. And I couldn't necessarily see that with Essendon consistently and I think that's the area that will decide how quickly Essendon bounce back up um, and, and whether the people in the shadows uh, like you mentioned the off-field stuff which is another probably three podcast episodes <laughs> by itself <laughs> um, we're, we're recording we're recording this you know after the glorious uh, tenure of Andrew Thorburn I don't even know if I said his name right as CEO <laughs> um, you know 20 24 hours it's the it's the um, Grandpa Simpson gif walking in the yeah. walking yeah. in the door, putting hat down and, and leaving. So um, I, before anyone asks, I have no comment on that. I just think there's enough being said on on all sides. Um, adding one more opinion to that is not really worth it for someone who's not going to be at the club anymore. So um, I'd rather just hope that they get the next one right and move on from there. But yeah, I guess yeah. I'm thinking more generally then. So you know, you probably watch. Um, as much football as anyone does. Um, much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you? Have, do you think you've got a sense of where the game is heading tactically in the next five years? You, you, do you think is is so? For example, is is the Geelong model what everyone's going to you know try and strive to achieve, or is, is that just sort of a one off for you know a, a team that's been constructed pretty uh, specifically for for that for that list? You know the the core that yeah. they have. Do you, what? Obviously, Essendon, Essendon was really trying to play that Richmond style. Is that yep. is that Richmond style on the wane? Is it is there something else coming up? What's your thoughts? So it's, uh, I don't think teams can replicate Geelong even if they wanted to because Geelong have so many inbuilt advantages. Um, well, one with a head start on how they manage their list, but they're not also locations and home ground, and probably I actually think they have the best best home ground advantage in the league or biggest I should say home ground advantage in the league compared to. Um, to, compared to all the other teams, it's, it's funny actually because obviously, you know, subjecting myself to North every week this year, um, and I just kept coming back to the conclusion that this isn't how you should be playing 
AFL in 2022. And then it sort of, I kept, I kept writing variations of that from week to week. <laughs> um, and then, control C, yeah. control V, just yeah. you know, get the thesaurus out. That's it. And then, and then after a few weeks of that, I kind of stepped back and realized, well, well, if you're going to keep writing it every week, well then how should the AFL in 2022 be played? You know what, where, where is it going? So I spent a lot of time this year just kind of watching and taking notes and sort of figuring out where at least I think AFL is going over the next few years. And I actually think we're heading into an offensive phase of the game. Um, and I think Collingwood's ball movement um, is, in general play this year is that next step. And I think if we take it back to sort of Richmond's rise, I was at six years ago now, um, with that pressure game they brought in, like it's been continually improved upon by other teams. I guess West Coast were the first team to realise that that kick mark counter that effectively, um, measured kick mark and then, but then the defense evolved again and the slow kick mark didn't have the, the same success as it once did as Geelong found out for a few years in a row, um, getting close, but, but not quite. And I think teams have figured out in general that more aggression on a ball move on the ball movement is the way to break the defense, which is what Collingwood did so well this year at the top level. And, and also Hawthorne did sneakily well under the radar at a lower level, obviously, obviously. Um, I think there's a quote from, um, from Arsene Wenger that I place a lot of stock in, even though it's for the soccer, I'd, I think it applies to football when he says, um, says football always progresses like the attack creates a new problem and then the defence responds. And I think we're in a stage where the attack's about to create a new problem um, because the attack is, has, has responded to what the defence has done over the last few years. So um, yeah, I definitely think we're heading into offensive phase and, and, and Collingwood's ball movement in general play was, I guess, the symbol of that this year. Um, and how that evolves next year is going to be interesting to watch. Well, I guess just sort of building on that, and this is sort of a, a question without notice. Is there a sort of <laughs> is there a sort of trend in terms of how long one, whether the the offense or the defense is in ascendancy before teams work it out, or is it just pretty random depending on you know individual individual teams or individual coaches you know discovering something or you know being forced to do something that ends ends up working? Is there a sort of a pattern to the to the way in which that progresses? I feel like a lot of it depends on what rule changes the AFL decide to well, do. Well, that was the next year. thing I was going to say is that, you know, the rule changes, you know, affect it. And obviously, you know, maybe maybe Brad's got an idea of what rule changes are coming next yeah. year. So, he'll have an advantage there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'll look at the stand rule. And I don't know. I doubt any Richmond fans are listening to this, but um, a lot of Richmond fans thought that stand rule was specifically brought in to sort of counter their main strengths. I mean, and. Yeah, not to get too far down the conspiracy theory hole, but in a general sense, you can see how that stand will, um, I guess, took away a little bit of, of Richmond's strength and, and promoted offense. So, I mean, that's the AFL's goal. And I, I feel like, you know, the AFL probably, if every game was sort of 110 to, to 95 or 120 to 110, they'd be happy. But um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think a lot of it depends on how long or how long these things um, evolve for. A lot of it depends on the rule changes. And then, and then I guess, when the team does stumble onto something, like how far ahead of the pack they are. And that's why I think it's a really interesting phase now um, because, I mean, I know we say this every year for the last 50, like 12 years, but I can't imagine Geelong are going to be up the top for too much longer. <laughs> I lived I lived in Geelong when they, when they started winning um, their yeah. premierships. And, yeah, I just, you know, just – being a SN, we were obviously Essendon was down at that time. So, you know, being an Essendon fan in Geelong, um, was not fun. Um, especially, <laughs> you know, oh, it was, was fun on, you know, when they won the grand final, you'd go out in town and it was just, it was packed and, and crazy, but you know, other, other than that, you know, could, could do without it. So, you know, I would like to see them, you know, 
have a little bit of, uh, you know, humility down the bottom of the ladder for a bit, like like the rest of us plebs. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, even yeah. if they're not at the top, I mean, I'll, I'll still be a decent side. But um, in terms of them being in the top tier, very, very, you know, tip top tier, um, I don't think that's going to last too much. And I think, um, I think probably Sydney are the next, feels like Sydney are the next team. I'm not saying that just because they're, they made a grand final, but in terms of their list profile. And, um, but then they have a little bit of that sort of nagging doubt that they can maybe go in their shell a little bit too much with the ball movement, like we saw in the sort of second half against, um, last quarter and a half against Collingwood. And um, and so there's no real clear next sort of, oh, Jesus, these guys are going to be the team for the next four years, you know? Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's what makes it really interesting to see what team breaks away and, and how they and how they break away in the style they play. So it's, I think it's really open. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, sort of coming back to, to what Scott's got to look ahead of him. Should he be, should he be trying to ride that trend? You know, the, the offensive trend, or do you think there's, there's value in trying to be the coach that, that stops that before it even starts, you know, identifying that that's the way the game's moving and, you know, thinking of ways to, to counter it, or does it really depend on how he, I, I'm guessing, you're probably going to say what I'm about to, I've just sort of come to the realization <laughs> in my head. It probably depends on how he sees the list in terms of what it's capable of. Yeah, potentially. I and mean, I mean, I know like we keep coming back to it every, you know, three, four minutes, but like he'll have seen a lot of stuff that has never seen, has never seen the light of day in terms of trends and whatnot um, that, you know, very, probably very few people at the AFL have seen, you know, apart from him and probably the, the big, big dogs at exec level. So, um, he might he might have intel that says the AFL is going in a completely different direction, and he and he can steal a march on the rest of the league, which is every is every chance. Um, I think in a general sense, I think the midfield mix has to be overhauled somehow, and um, I'm pretty adamant that you can't play all of Merritt, Parish, and Shield the on ball rotation at the same time unless one of them change their role because the three pure ball winners at the same time. Well, I, mean, I just don't think it works. Um, I think that's probably his main main focus from a style point of view. Um, and then after that, that'll obviously have an impact on how you defend um, and how you and how you attack. Whether you can go taller, whether you can go smaller in the, in the forward half. But um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's definitely a blank slate for Essendon and, and at a good at a good time too with the way the with the way I think <laughs> anyway the game's evolving. Well, that, that's it. And as as I said, I think you know your your opinion is as is as valid as anyone's, especially considering you know your work on the shin bone. And can you just sort of go into, you know, just as we, we had to wrap this up, um, can you just sort of go into what you do there? You know, assuage people is not just, you know, entirely <laughs> North Melbourne stuff and um, how people can access your work and support you. Yeah. So the shinbone.com is where everything is. So the rest of trade theory, the plan is to have a post on every player who's uh, moved clubs with the potential exception of a couple of delisted free agents. Um, Patreon, uh, it's just Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the shinboner. So um, get first access to those posts for 24 hours um, before they're opened up for the public. Um, so that's for the next, you know, 10 days or whatever it is, even though trade period feels like about, you know, six weeks. Um, and then from, so then after trade period finishes, we'll go on hiatus till March. Um, got my real job at Channel 7, running the cricket socials to focus on. Um, just for the record, I didn't have, I don't have any impact on what's broadcast where, so don't come at me for that. Um <laughs> And then from and then from March one next year we'll be uh, back in force, but um, Patreon running again, uh, all refreshed with a few new uh, long term running features. I want to unveil. Well, look, uh, as I said, I I've started getting onto it um, this this past couple of months, and I actually signed up 
um, this past week when you when you start doing the trade stuff. So um, I'm I'm super impressed with with the work, and I think everyone yeah, should you. should get on and, and check it out. Um, as I said, and look, you know, I know you sort of made the, the comment that you know you, you know this could be the last appearance of a non Essendon person, but I'm, I know <laughs> Jono Jono as well is also really. Um, you know, really impressed with with the work you do, and um, hopefully can have you back on uh, sometime next year. Um, maybe as part of our preview for the next Essendon North game, and you know, really dig de- down into into how that game's going to go. Thank you, I appreciate. It. I'll be I'd be stunned if that wasn't around one job. It just seems, makes too much sense to be honest. But we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll see. Um, well, that's it from us. Uh, the next planned episode will be in a couple of weeks when Jono's back overseas. So we'll be reviewing what happened during trade week for Essendon, probably leaning a lot on uh, what Ricky. Ricky posts on the Shinbona. Um, and then we'll be looking forward to the, the national draft where we have another special guest uh, lined up for that as well. Uh, till then, take care all and go Dons.